This is a podcast from Deutsche Welle. For more information and a selection of other programs, click on to dwworld.de. Deutsche Welle. Spectrum. But when you examine the items, they don't work. Or is this a way to get rid of these computers from Europe to Africa? We look at how Europe is tackling e-waste through legislation and through entrepreneurship. Hello, and welcome to Spectrum. I'm Sarus Faravar in Bonn with the latest in science and technology from Europe. Also coming up, an Italian team sets out this week to drive an autonomous car from Italy to China. So how might that affect designs of other vehicles in the future? You can have your uh, autonomous tractor move along the, your, your field 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so without anybody uh, on board. We've also got the latest about the ebook market in Germany and how Nigeria's president is posting up a storm on Facebook. But first, German research has broken new ground in the field of gesture-based user interfaces. Stay tuned. Remember the movie Minority Report? You know, the one where Tom Cruise's character has to catch a murderer before he commits the crime? In it, he has a futuristic screen that he uses to investigate the soon-to-be murder. Simply by waving his hands in front of a large piece of glass, Tom Cruise could zoom in on pictures or slide them away. Today, we're moving closer to that reality of gesture-based user interfaces, or UIs. We've already got those multi-touch maps on TV and the Nintendo Wii. But recently, German researchers announced their own gesture-based system that requires no extra gear, like a Wiimote, and doesn't require touching the screen. Stuart Tiffin reports. Georg Hackenberg is a young man with a serious demeanor. He seems like the exact person capable of bringing science fiction to reality. He's a graduate researcher at the Fraunhofer Institute for Applied Information Technology in the town of St. Augustine, just outside of Bonn. And for his recently completed master's thesis, he's managed to create what he and his colleagues are calling a 3D non-contact gesture-based computer interface. The system is a prototype technology demo. It's essentially an advanced infrared sensor on a tripod that's attached to a desktop computer. Displayed on the monitor is a 3D wireframe which serves as the workspace for the system. When someone is standing in front of the system, the infrared sensor picks up the movements of their hands, interpreting them into commands. The system recognizes even individual fingers in front of the sensor, without any need for extra equipment. In other words, it's something straight out of Minority Report. As he stands in front of the infrared sensor, Heckenberg appears to be almost dancing in slow motion. We show the hand, then we grab, make a fist, and that's basically locking the image to the hand, grabbing the, the image, and then we can move it around. Then we release it, and by opening the hand again, the object is placed where you left it. At this early stage, the system has only limited functionality. It's been programmed to load and manipulate photos. There's a 3D jigsaw puzzle and another kind of puzzle designed to test the user's ability to manipulate objects in the 3D environment. When I tried it out, it felt very intuitive, just a matter of learning which gestures led to which actions in the program. And it's something that lots of people can interact with at the same time. You said that you could have multiple people interacting with this at once? Yeah, it's um, possible. Can this unit do that? Yeah. yeah. You can have four hands on the screen at one time? Yeah. I mean, you can just place your hand, maybe. These are already two, and there's a third. Maybe rot another one. Uh, there's fourth, fifth. 
The work being done here is part of a growing body of work in the area of gesture research. The Sixth Sense project at MIT has been developing similar work for over a decade now. Video game companies have also gotten into it, with Nintendo Wii and the soon-to-be-released Kinect, an add-on for the Microsoft Xbox 360 video game system. It's the fact that the system recognizes gestures without any additional equipment like a controller that makes this research stand out, says Sven Bienke. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Bonn. Controlling games uh, is an obvious uh, application, but uh, of course there might be more serious applications. For instance, exploring data. Yeah? So to navigate in uh, three-dimensional visualizations is not very easy. And if you find an intuitive way uh, to use uh, your body there, then uh, it could make it much easier to understand large data sets. At the Fraunhofer Institute... Hackenberg's colleague Rod McCall is reluctant to speculate about exactly where, when, or how fast this research might move from the lab out into the real world, but says there might also be other uses for the system. This is the beginning, and then later you will see this for maybe uh, museums, galleries, maybe other large-scale events. You can see here now that you can interact very fluidly and very easily with your hands when you move objects around the screen. For the immediate future, McCall and Hackenberg will be running the system's algorithms through more usability testing. Their ultimate goal is to use this technology on mobile phones. But before their gesture user interface can translate to such a small package, mobile phone technology will have to catch up. Stuart Tiffin, Deutsche Welle Radio. One user interface that hasn't changed much in centuries is the book. Most people around the world flip through pages and read in more or less the same way. But e-books are on the rise, with the arrival of digital readers like the Amazon Kindle and the Apple iPad. In fact, this past week, the American online retailer Amazon announced that it had sold more e-books than hardcover books in its most recent business quarter. But Germans have been a little slow to the e-book party. Tom Sheldrick has more. Elisabeth Rüger founded the book publishing house Berlin Verlag in the 1990s. The company struggled early on, but now releases 200 new publications a year. Even though Berlin Verlag is doing well now, she's still looking to the future. I think that very, very difficult times lie ahead of us. We need to have lots of ideas. We need to be prepared to adjust to a lot of new things and to bring what's important to us in the publishing world into this new framework. Elisabeth Rüger isn't the only one preparing herself for an oncoming storm of e-books. The word among publishers, booksellers and industry insiders is the same. The e-book is set to turn the entire industry on its head. But for the moment, sales figures for e-books in Germany have many people simply shaking their heads instead. In Deutschland is the e-book anteil noch weit unter einem Prozent. In Germany, the e-book market share is still well under 1%, and there are two main reasons for that. The first is that the range of bestsellers is still not wide enough that it would really be attractive for a large reading audience. And the second is that for a long time we didn't have an adequate reading device, you know, an e-book reader. Now we have the iPad, and we know that this year there will be several more coming out of the major suppliers' development labs that will be of a similar quality. That's Ronald Schild, the CEO of Libreka, a kind of online e-book shop from the German Booksellers Association. Around 25,000 e-book titles are listed on Libreka. Compare that to the 1.2 million printed books available in the German book market. In Germany, at least, the media hype surrounding e-books is hardly being reflected by the reality of the publishing world. And the slow take-up of e-books among German consumers isn't helped by the lack of interchangeable e-readers available. 
For example, e-books available for the Apple iPad or the Amazon Kindle aren't yet compatible with one another. We have leider die Situation, dass gerade große Anbieter Unfortunately, we're in a situation where the big suppliers use their own formats so that their e-books can only be read using their readers, which for the consumer is obviously not a very attractive scenario because it means that if you switch to a new reader, you also have to buy a whole new library. When it comes to online sellers like the internet bookseller Amazon and now also the Apple iBook store, it's becoming increasingly unclear who counts as a publisher and who does not. Dorothea Ritz is the online and consumer general manager for Microsoft Germany. She says that media question won't be nearly so important in the future. We're a software company, not a media company by any means. But certainly to some extent we are a publisher, in the sense that all the consumers who are on our platforms are creating an incredible amount of content. And I think we do publish in that we combine the content that's already out there with what today might be called the classic book form. So that creates entirely new and exciting forms of books and content, or everything. That's what makes this new world so interesting. But it's also what challenges the old world. As books are increasingly digitized and sold online, the future of traditional bookstores has become increasingly uncertain. The bookstore Osiander in southern Germany has decided to mix it up rather than give up. The mid-sized firm has 22 branches already and now its own online e-book store. Hermann Ant Rietzmüller is Osiander's CEO. When people buy e-books now they have to go to different providers and have an account with each. But when they buy e-books through our bookstore, they can find titles from all of these providers in the one place. I think it's a great opportunity for us. We have a kind of advisory function. We're still booksellers in terms of our selection process, and I think the role of that selection process has really been strengthened, just like I think the role of books has been strengthened. And in future, quality literature will continue to be printed, but I think the things you only read once, crime novels or whatever, no longer will be, because in a sense they wear out after one use. It's hard to predict how readers will respond to e-books in the future. Some in the industry are keeping an eye on the US market, where e-books already account for almost 10% of total sales. Whether Germany will follow that trend is hard to say. But many Germans are already making the move to e-books. One recent survey result found that this year, 3 million of Germany's 80 million people will buy an e-book. Tom Sheldrick, Deutsche Welle Radio. You're listening to Spectrum on Deutsche Welle Radio. I'm Sarus Faravar. If you'd like to listen to a piece again, or even subscribe to our podcast, come find us online at www.dw-world.de slash spectrum. We're also now on Twitter. You can follow us or send us a message at dw underscore SciTech. dwworld.de, Deutsche Welle's internet website. We bring you news and views from a European perspective. You'll find information about current affairs, business and economics, culture and lifestyle. You can even learn German with our online German courses. And of course, we bring you the latest program details for DW TV and DW Radio. Deutsche Welle on the internet at dwworld.de.
Oh, sorry. Just got to turn off my iPhone here. You know, maybe I should get one of those new fancy iPhone 4s, or maybe try out a Google Android. Either way, I'll have to get rid of my current phone. If I don't sell it or give it to a friend, then it would become electronic waste. E-waste is notoriously hard to deal with in an environmentally friendly way, as much of it contains toxic chemicals and metals. But even with recycling plans and environmental laws, e-waste often falls through the cracks. That's why the European Union is now trying to lay down some new, stronger standards. Terry Schultz reports from Brussels. But no matter how cherished an electronic item is in life, this is where it will probably end up, at the dump. Or here in Belgium, it sounds a little better, at the container park. Here it gets sorted into categories, and the electronic waste, or e-waste, theoretically goes on to be taken apart, with hazardous substances removed by well-trained workers in protective gear. Recyclable components will be melted down, and anything biodegradable will be sent off to compost. But the problem is only a fraction of cast-off electronics in the EU actually see that fate. A new report by the European Parliament shows about 65% of the total amount of e-waste generated in the block gets turned in and sorted correctly, but after that, things go downhill, or more literally, downstream. Besides existing EU laws requiring collection and treatment, all EU nations have signed the Basel Convention, outlawing the export of hazardous waste, requiring it to be treated as close to its origin as possible. But through loopholes, by claiming items or donations or functioning secondhand goods for resale, or by simply breaking the law, middlemen are making millions and making impoverished nations pay the price. Tightening existing laws will help, says Stefan Arditi of the European Environmental Bureau, a Brussels-based NGO, but it's enforcement that's really needed from the developed world. We've been clearly negligent. We've been clearly negligent because we haven't set the right resources to fight again illegal shipment. That is something everybody is aware of, probably also ashamed of. Mike Anane, president of the League of Environmental Journalists in Ghana, told researchers from the Danish watchdog organization Danwatch that his country is clearly being used as a convenient landfill for Europe, citing the mountains of discarded computers, monitors and televisions that Ghana has no way to recycle safely. Some come in under the guise of donations, but when you examine the items, they don't work or it's just a way to get rid of these computers from Europe to Africa. Dan watches Marin Swart is in Accra right now investigating the levels of e-waste that are being shipped to Ghana, either illegally or through the loopholes about secondhand items. We have found a computer from the Danish company Stifol in Accra. They had a tag on where it was signed that it was from a school in Denmark. The European Parliament's Environment Committee is proposing more stringent standards that would require each member state to collect 85% of the waste it generates and to prove that the majority of that is treated within the country. The full legislature will vote on the proposed changes in September. Belgium is currently the president of the EU and has made sustainable materials management, including ethical waste treatment, a priority for the next six months. Flemish Environment Minister Joke Skavliga says the entire life cycle of products needs to be considered. When possible, she says, the cradle-to-cradle principle should be applied, meaning that waste is used to create new products rather than mountains of monitors. She speaks here through an interpreter. This is a societal challenge on a large scale. These are things of importance to all of us. It's not just governments that need to deal with this. It's also the business world, citizens and also think tanks, experts. We need free thinkers, forerunners. 
Actually, Scalvliga has some free thinkers and forerunners right at home in Belgium. Their names are Marc Albrecht, Jean-Pierre Dehaes, and Xavier Petre, and they left companies like Alcatel and Cisco to create United Pepper. Now they design items like webcams and USB hubs that are largely biodegradable. For example, with a cotton casing filled with a natural fiber called Kapok and weighted with sand from the Mekong River in Vietnam, where the company's manufacturing sites are located. They're awaiting the day when even the lens and cable can be made of natural materials, the men say. But for now, they ensure that the non-green components are kept to a bare minimum and that every step of the process is transparent. Petre says consumers are increasingly demanding that kind of information for ethical decision-making. When you put 50 euro on a table to buy a webcam, you should know who is behind, you should know who produced, and you should know what type of material we use. United Pepper is also the first electronics producer in the world to be certified as fair trade, meaning it upholds standards of sustainability both in the components of its products and the workforce putting them together. This type of certification, perhaps best known in agricultural and beauty products and clothing, doesn't even exist yet in the electronics industry. So United Pepper asked the UK-based NGO Tradecraft to carry out an audit in order to document that the company's practices meet a high ethical and environmental standard. Dehaz says the leading edge of green IT is an exciting place to be. We are becoming entrepreneurs of a new kind of economy. Now the time just to make values accepted by our market. And once you remove the tiny lens and cable from a United Pepper webcam, the only dirty part of the disposal is the bed of Mekong sand, in which the seeds in the natural Kapok filling have been known to sprout. This might be the first kind of e-waste people don't feel the need to put in someone else's backyard. Terry Schultz, Deutsche Welle Radio, Brussels. Last week, Facebook hit 500 million members. The company likes to brag that if it were a nation, it would be the third largest on the planet, just behind China and India. One of its newer members is Nigerian President Goodluck Jonathan, who gives almost daily updates in English about his political activities. As Sophie Tarr reports, Nigerians are pretty excited about having their new president on Facebook. The newest offering from the presidential palace in the Nigerian capital Abuja has been met with enormous interest. Before the president's Facebook page was even two weeks old, it had the thumbs up from more than 100,000 Facebook users. To put that in perspective, just 40,000 users have hit Facebook's like button on German Chancellor Angela Merkel's page, though it's considerably older. President Goodluck Jonathan still has a way to go, though, before he'll be able to compete with U.S. President Barack Obama, whose page 10 million people have liked. Facebook, for non-users, is a social media site where people can create profile pages and publish their thoughts. In addition to the regular profiles, pages can also be created for groups, businesses, celebrities, authors, politicians, or just about any other category you can think of. At the top of these pages is the like button, which users can hit to indicate that they support or like that identity or group. Sitting in an internet cafe in Sokoto in northwestern Nigeria, a young woman has just opened the president's Facebook page. This is a real change, but a good change. It allows all of Nigeria the ability to give their opinions directly to the politicians. When there are problems, then they can get them straight. Before the president, there were already a few other politicians on Facebook. They give their opinions on various topics, just like we do, without being afraid of being arrested. 
This reduces the gulf between the politicians and the people. Around one million Nigerians have already signed up for Facebook, and with that kind of audience, the social network has become very attractive to many politicians. They see it as a way to get into discussions with their fellow countrymen and as a way to air their thoughts and problems so that collaborative solutions can be found. Yakuba Musa, who works on President Jonathan's public relations team, describes the first Facebook day as a huge success. And though he helped initiate the idea, he isn't the one writing the texts. The president does it himself. If you look at it, it has, even, uh, it has been influencing some of his decisions that he has been taking, uh, like the issue of uh, NFA, whose role of, uh, from international football. The president changed, uh, reversed the decision, and sec- uh, subsequently... On the website, he said he took that decision on the basis of some comments that he gathered from Nigerians. President Jonathan doesn't only write about soccer. He discusses other things that have been troubling his people for a long time, inconsistent and insufficient electricity production, say, or environmental problems in the Niger Delta. And it seems the Nigerians have taken to the idea of a conversation with their head of state. Each entry by the president quickly attracts between 1,500 and 2,000 comments. Back at the Internet Café in Sokoto, young Abdurrahman Muhammad is also excited about the new opportunities the web has brought. I opened a Facebook page because I saw how many other people were getting on the social network. I can use Facebook to let people know what I think, and I hope I can do my bit to make so many things in my country and the world better. I think what our president has done is great. It's good for all Nigerians. And it isn't just politicians and regular citizens in Nigeria who are getting in on the act. Muslim imams are also trying to gain new followers by using Facebook. Usman Aliyu is one of them. He uses Facebook as a platform to discuss religious and social issues. I opened a Facebook page because I wanted to know how people act within the social network. We've seen that many young people are very active on Facebook, so we use that as a way to show how religious concepts and the correct way of acting apply to their daily lives. Lawala Liu is exactly the kind of person the imam is targeting, but he doesn't have time for what he sees as small ideas. To him, Facebook is more about getting out into the world. Facebook is a website where people can give their opinions or discuss problems. In our country, people often don't always have the courage to say what they think in public. But on Facebook, they can write what they want, the whole world can see it, react to it, and make suggestions. Sophie Tarr, Deutsche Welle Radio. Speaking of Facebook, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Deutsche Welle. Scientists have long dreamed of cars that could drive themselves. In fact, six years ago, the first long-distance driverless car competition was held in the middle of the California desert. The DARPA Grand Challenge, as it was known, was sponsored by the United States Department of Defense Research Wing, better known by its acronym DARPA. At that time, none of the teams actually finished the course, but researchers had two more chances in 2005 and 2007, and each of those did have winners. Now, an Italian company called VizLab, staffed by many who designed one of the vehicles in previous DARPA challenges, is now taking their car to an entirely new level. 
Some might even call it the ultimate summer road trip. Instead of driving on a predetermined course, over the next three months, VizLab's car will drive on its own from Parma, Italy to Shanghai, China. The team has dubbed the tour the VizLab Intercontinental Autonomous Challenge, and it will set out from Italy later this week. I spoke with the leader of VizLab, Alberto Brogi. He's a professor of computer engineering at the University of Parma. I started off by asking him how he planned on achieving this task. He said that, in fact, there will be two bright orange vans working together. The first vehicle will be manned, so there will be someone sitting behind the steering wheel and driving the vehicle, and that vehicle will uh, define the route. So the second vehicle will be following it automatically. So if the first vehicle is in line of sight, then the second vehicle will just uh, look at it and follow it. If there is someone in between, so um, the vehicle is not visible from the second one because you know someone else got into them, um, or uh, the first vehicle is behind the curve, or you know there are some situations in which the, the second vehicle cannot see the first vehicle. In that case, the first vehicle broadcasts its GPS position to the second one, and the second one will follow a rough idea of the route given by the GPS points. So this is a trick that we use. Can you kind of walk me through how you expect this car to function? Like, what is it actually doing when it's moving? Um, we have seven cameras on the car, uh, five in the front and two in the back. And with the five uh, cameras in the front are divided into two systems. One is a stereo system, two cameras. And one is a panoramic system, three cameras. So the stereo system just looks in front of the vehicle and detects uh, obstacles uh, and detects lane markings. Uh, and uh, so some, uh, uh, let's say, close range, close to medium range uh, um, detection. Then we have the three camera system, which is a panoramic view. So uh, we have one camera exactly in front, uh, one 60 degrees on the right, one 60 degrees on the left. And you put all these three images together to get one single big image of the world around. So you have a um, it's not 180 degrees, it's a little less, but uh, I, you, know, you can imagine that as a 180 degree is images, image. And that is used uh, to locate the vehicle in front. Because, uh, for example, you have, if you have a very tight curve, uh, you need a very wide uh, uh, angle of view to keep track of the position of the, of the vehicle in front. So these are the two vision systems which are in the front. Um, plus we have laser scanners. So laser scanners, we have four of them. Uh, we have two uh, simple laser scanners on the sides, and which, which monitor the presence of obstacles on the left and right-hand side. Plus, we have one more, uh, you know, more penetrating um, laser scanners in the front, and uh, that's uh, used to detect obstacles in the, in, the, in the frontal part of the vehicle. Plus, we have another laser scanner which is uh, placed in, on top of the of the car. And it looks down to detect uh, ditches, uh, berms, uh, um, holes in the ground. And that's used for um, uh, off-road driving. I think that uh, for me, you know, when I first heard about the DARPA challenges and then now your project, you know, I think to myself, you know, wow, this is, this is really cool. I mean, you're, you're really pushing kind of the limits of, of robotics and, and transportation and things like that. What applications do you see for your type of research? Where do you expect uh, that it will go? And do you, do you think that, you know, regular people might be able to benefit from this? Definitely. I mean, the answer is yes, um, but not now, so in a few years. 
I think that the, the very first uh, application domain would be you know, kind of uh, agricultural domain in which you can have your uh, autonomous tractor move along the, your, your field 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so without anybody uh, on board. So that would be, you know, I'm saying this because the agricultural domain is much easier than the normal, you know, traffic and city traffic. Uh, you know, military application as well. Uh, even civil applications like, uh, you know, road construction areas uh, in which vehicles can move without anybody on board uh, or, or mining or, you know, harsh environments. And maybe one day, I mean, I'm sure, one day this technology will also be on, uh, on cars. But I think this will be the very last. Professor Alberto Brogi there from the University of Parma. We'll be checking in with the computer engineering professor in the coming weeks as the van treks along through Europe and Asia. And that's it for Spectrum this week. If you've got questions, comments, or story ideas, we're always happy to hear from you. Send your emails to features at dw-world.de. That's also where you can send us your photos of the Italian orange van as it makes it the historic 13,000-kilometer journey. From Deutsche Welle Radio in Bonn, Germany, I'm Sarus Faravar, and thanks for listening. Reluctantly crouched at the starting line, engines pumping and thumping in time. The green light flashes, the flags go up, churning and burning, they yearn for the cup. They deftly maneuver and muscle for rank, fuel burning fast on an empty tank. Reckless and wild, they pour through the turns Their prowess is potent and secretly stern As they speed through the finish, the flags go down The fans get up and they get out of town The arena is empty, except for one man Still driving and striving as fast as he can The sun has gone down and the moon has come up And long ago somebody left with the cup But he's driving and striving and hugging the turns And thinking of someone for whom he still burns He's going the distance You've been listening to a podcast from Deutsche Welle. We hope you enjoyed the program. You'll find more information and podcasts at dwworld.de.